Welcome back to a shiny, brand new episode of People Are Wild. My name is Kim, and I'm your friendly neighborhood ER nurse, here to take you into the new week with a fun new topic or two. Now, some announcements, follow-up, commentaries. Number one, please remember that this podcast is not meant to substitute for medical care that your doctor that you know can provide. I'm just an ER nurse, and I bought a microphone, and I've amassed a little bit too many stories to not share with all of you. Number two, please stop sending me pictures of privates. Not like Private Benjamin, like your nether regions. I'm not Ann Perkins, I'm not Carla from Scrubs, I have a good sense of humor, but I'm a real person who does a real job and is somewhat professional at it. And the only dick pics I ever want to see better involve Richard Nixon. Now finally, on a lighter note, I've been in Texas on my current assignment for a little over two weeks, and I have a couple of questions. Why do Texans love Whataburger so much? And why do I need to remember the Alamo? I can barely remember the Titans, left side, strong side, and fatigues are army clothes. Okay, back to Whataburger. I thought it was something about like a water burger, two separate words, like water and burger. It's not though, apparently it's not. So if you are from Texas or you have roots in a water burger, please tell me why this is a thing out here and why it's such a big deal. Is Whataburger to Texas like In-N-Out is to California? Either way, I feel like I'm on a different planet and I just want to fit in like I'm Katie Heron before she meets the plastics. Now, in an effort to distract myself from this Whataburger mystery that I'll solve at a later time, I have lit all five of my Spice Girls candles. I am still holding out hope that that reunion tour is a real thing. I have listened to Evanescence's Bring Me to Life on loop repeat for an hour, and I'm ready, if you're ready, to talk about how people are wild. Now, let me take the time to be serious for just a second. Number one, there is a thunderstorm currently going on outside while I'm recording this, so hopefully the sound of the rain is soothing as you listen, and not so much that sound of the thunder. Maybe that'll be a little distressing, so hopefully that doesn't happen. Also, the way I'm presenting today's topics do come with a bit of a warning, and I call any warning that I need to put into any of my episodes the cut. So today's cut I'm issuing because I'm going to be talking about organ donation. And in order to talk about organ donation, I have to talk about death. And the story that I'm about to present to you, well, it's a little bit heavy, even by Marty McFly's standards. So here we go. Now, it was a typical Tuesday night in the ER. Well, somewhat typical. Maybe it was more like a typical 3 a.m. in the ER on a Tuesday. Jane loved working night shifts like this. You hit the ground running, moving faster than a real housewife trying to dodge a drink being thrown in their face. But at about 2 or 3 a.m., that pace starts to level off. The department only had about six patients in it, and it was a 32-bed ER, so it wasn't that busy of a night at this point. Shay, the charge nurse, was just getting off the phone when she spotted Jane and motioned for her to come over. 
Jane got out of her chair and headed over as Shay finished writing down something before handing the paper over to Jane. They had been expecting a transfer from one of the smaller outlying hospitals, but Jane had only been about half awake and half paying attention when she got on shift that morning or afternoon. You never know in night shift land. And while they had had their huddle at the beginning of the shift, she just really wasn't paying attention. Now, it wasn't uncommon for transfers to be called hours in advance of a patient actually leaving that transferring facility or hospital. The patient had to be stabilized and then stable enough for transport in general. And at this point, it had taken some time, but they finally were going to receive their transfer patient. Now, Jane was told that the patient had about a 15-minute ETA, and the vital signs, they were stable en route. And so as Jane and Shay and the ER tech Eddie were setting up the room to receive their patient, Shay filled them in on the back of what was going on. Jane, this one, this one is rough. We're getting a 22-year-old female who has a GSW to the head in an attempt to kill herself. Her mom came over a little bit early to the apartment and found her daughter on the floor of the bedroom. Now EMS was able to get a pulse back on her and they got her sedated and right now she's tubed but she's not on any sedation meds. They don't have neuro over at that hospital, so that, amongst other things, are going to be what we're going to supply her with. Shay spoke with a little bit of sadness to her voice. The whole situation was rather heartbreaking. The family members were en route to the hospital and would be there soon thereafter Jasmine's arrival. That was the name of their patient. Fifteen minutes later, 22-year-old Jasmine Newman arrived to the ER. Her head was bandaged up, her eyes were closed, her skin color was a little bit pale. She was attached to a ventilator that was helping her breathe, and when they helped transfer her over from the stretcher to the ER bed, she never moved. Her vitals were stable as neurology came in to assess her. The family was not quite to the hospital just yet, but the neurologist turned to Jane after doing his assessment and basically gave an unofficial official confirmation that Jasmine was brain dead. Between the assessments from various doctors, Jasmine's bandaged head had been taken down. As the ER doc and their neurologist talked, Eddie and Jane were given the okay to go ahead and clean up and change Jasmine's dressing before the family came in. They unwrapped the remaining parts of her bandage and could see the bullet wounds very clearly. She had shot herself with what they were told a 9mm handgun that she kept in her apartment for safety. It had left two wounds from entry and exit on either side of her temple. It certainly wasn't horrible like some of the gunshot wounds they had seen, but nevertheless, Eddie and Jane were careful. They had to be. Brain matter had nowhere else to go besides the wounds. Jane and Eddie shared a moment looking at each other while cleaning up Jasmine. Sometimes this job, it just plain sucks, Eddie. Eddie nodded in agreement. Jasmine hadn't moved the whole time that they had been rebandaging her head, or when they put a fresh gown on her, or when they placed warm blankets over her, and tried their best to cover the numerous IVs, lines, and other tubes that were keeping Jasmine alive and monitored. They placed boxes of tissues by the bedside, as they had just been told that the family was arriving to the ER. The ER doc and neurologist were waiting at the bedside as Jane and Eddie walked the family members back to Jasmine's room. After everyone had introduced themselves, the two physicians started telling the family what was going on and how Jasmine's prognosis was not ideal. Jasmine's mother and father were nodding, leaning on each other for support, as Jasmine's two sisters sat in the chairs occasionally dabbing their eyes with tissues in a brave attempt to have some sort of control on their emotions. Jane herself had to excuse herself from the room to take a phone call at the nurse's station, while Eddie remained in the room with the physicians and the family members. 
after hanging up the phone with pharmacy. She had to clarify an order after all for her other patients. Jay came up to Jane to check on how she was doing with Jasmine. Hey, Jane, I heard them talking and I kind of crept over to see the CT. Is it official? Is she brain dead? Shay had asked. Seems like it. Unresponsive pupils and any movement that she makes is basically all from reflex at this point. But Shay, she's only 22. I know. I called the chaplain, by the way. They should be here soon. Eddie's in there with them right now, right? Jane nodded her head, yes, to Shay. Good. He's a really good one to have in there. Agreed. But I need to call, don't I? She meets the criteria, doesn't she? Jane had asked Shay, even though she herself knew the answer. Unfortunately, you're right. And at least... This is a little bit different than when we normally call them. Here's the number in the sheet. I'll look after all your other peeps, Shay said to Jane, as she handed her a piece of paper that across the top said organ donation protocol. Sitting and grabbing the phone, Jane dialed the number that would in turn begin the path towards life-changing events in numerous people's lives. So let's talk a little bit about organ donation. It should be warned that there are variations from state to state in terms of protocols and policies, but there are some fundamental things that happen that basically don't really change. Now, in a code blue situation, cardiac arrest or respiratory arrest happens, and unfortunately, we do not get them back. So that person is pronounced dead and sometimes they're dead on arrival to the ER. Now at this point, you, the ER nurse, and your ER team, you guys are racing against the clock to keep tissues and organs usable, viable for donation. Now oftentimes, you might have to call the organ donation line before you will call next of kin, a coroner, or even funeral homes in somewhat of that order. Now tissues and organs have a finite lifespan, and you can't wait too long or else the window will close for donation. So you have to initiate this process pretty much immediately after time of death is called. When I personally have spoken to Donate Life or the organ donation lines, whatever it is, it varies state to state what they call themselves, they are fantastic people who are doing a job that is kind of morbid, but also life-altering and life-saving. So... What they do is they will ask me, as the nurse, questions about what happened during the code or the patient's health history and any pre-existing conditions that the patient might have that we would know of. They try and get as much of a summary of what happened to the patient prior to and during the code as well as what we did for them in the ER. And then, well, then you begin to play a bit of phone tag with them for quite some time, sometimes even a couple of hours. It's like if bye-bye birdies telephone hour and goosebumps had a child because every time you're answering that phone you don't necessarily want to know what the story is morning glory but that's the best way that i kind of describe it to people when it's talking about talking to the donate life phone people the donate life people they will look up to see if that patient is a registered organ donor And then they look up to see if there are tissues or organs that can be used if the person is not a registered organ donor. In the whole time that this is going on in the ER, until you get a yes or no from Donate Life, 
you kind of are doing some tissue preservation with a code situation. It's a little bit different because you might have broken some ribs. There might be some other things going on. So tissue donation is kind of what you are more concerned about. And so you might be asked by Donate Life to keep the eyes moist. Oh, that word. Okay, but you are asked to keep the cornea viable and usable. And the only way to do that is to keep eyes lubricated with saline drops. It all depends though on what you actually did again during that code and what else is going on with that patient in terms of what can realistically be donated and what is still usable. So if someone dies from a heart attack or a pulmonary embolism, and that causes either cardiac arrest or respiratory arrest respectively, you can't really use the heart or lungs for donation, but you can use corneas and skin and sometimes vertebral bodies even after the time of death is called, even after a code situation. So time is literally tissue and organs with deciding what can be used. It's just an interesting process to go through. And there's more to it than what I'm saying, but just for the sake of what I want to talk about in today's episode, kind of dog ear this. And I'm sure at some point I will return to it in a future episode. Now, going back to Jasmine's case, she's attached to machines that are helping to monitor her vitals and ventilator that is helping her to breathe and it's keeping her body alive. Now, when a neurologist has determined that she is brain dead, that there is brain death, her body is alive, her brain is dead. She has suffered a traumatic brain injury that she can in no way recover from or be reversed. She is unresponsive to all stimulus, and any reaction that she has at this point is purely from reflexes, and it's not spontaneous movement that she is actually aware of. So for Jane, she was tasked with calling Donate Life because Jasmine was currently in a state where, unlike in a code situation, she's actually stabilized and her body is still alive. Now, this creates the possibility to donate organs as well as tissues. So now we start thinking about lungs, liver, kidneys, and the heart. See, I was going to make this loop around and connect to Heart Health Month. You just have to have faith in me. Just have a little bit of faith. Now, one thing is for sure, ER staff will not and cannot directly approach the family to ask about organ donation. What Jane was doing was calling the Donate Life people and filling them in on what was happening. So essentially what she's doing at this point is lighting a beacon to a potential organ donation situation. And the Donate Life people will send their representative and coordinate with hospital resources, including spiritual support, such as the chaplain, in order to meet with the family and discuss organ donation. Now, I don't know personally what goes on in those meetings. I imagine it's not the most pleasant talk since a family has to decide rather quickly about donating their loved one's organs. But I know the people who work in these positions And they are some of the most compassionate, understanding, and selfless people I have ever come across. And there's a reason why they do what they do, and they do it very well. Jasmine's family, 
After long discussions, numerous boxes of tissues, and hours of praying, came to a bittersweet decision to take her off life support and donate her organs. Let's go into a little bit about organ recovery. And that's what that's called. It's not called harvesting. Let's just be clear about that. Organ recovery is a process that begins about 24 to 36 hours from the time consent is given. Consent has to be given by next of kin, family members. It can't necessarily just be given. It has to be from a family member of some sort or next of kin situation. In organ recovery, there's just on a personal level, there was um, an incident that happened or a situation, I should say, that happened. And I got this like surreal feel where I felt like I was in Grey's Anatomy, which actually as a quick aside, I've never watched a full episode of Grey's. I cannot deal with that show. I don't understand it. If you sat me down to watch an episode, if you paid me money, I just, I couldn't do it. And if you sat me down, paid me money, I'm just going to talk the whole way through about how medically inaccurate it is in an attempt to ruin it for you. So I just wanted to put that one out there. But it was this moment where I was like, I really feel like I'm not necessarily in the ER. I feel like this could be on a TV show. So, and it was around organ recovery. So when I saw this happen in real time, they flew in the transplant team with the physicians and the associated specialties that go along with that. They flew them in from a major city and they flew them into our small regional airport by our hospital. And then they literally taxied them, not even an ambulance. They they put them in a taxi. They took them to our facility. And I see these doctors walk in with coolers which I always imagine made for an interesting taxi ride for that driver. So these doctors get to our hospital and they start the organ recovery procedure. And during organ recovery, this is when they're in the OR and they make the midline incision. The heart is recovered first, followed by the lungs, liver, pancreas, kidneys, and even sometimes the bowel. The incision is then sutured and closed and the patient's body is cared for with dignity and respect. And then based on arrangements made, the patient's body is then transported to the funeral home or sometimes to a medical examiner's office, depending on what needs to be done further. Back to the moment, my Grey's Anatomy moment, you fast forward a few hours later after the procedure's done and we see these doctors walk out again. We see the organ recovery team leave with their coolers, which are now essentially full of organs and tissues, and they get back into a taxi, again, not an ambulance, to go back to the airport and then they fly out. It left me with a couple questions that I still need to like put out here because they still linger in my mind. Number one, was it the same taxi driver that picked them up? Because if it was, you know that guy is probably full of great stories. And you know what? I want to sit and hang out with you, buy a campfire, I'll buy a couple drinks because you and I, we need to have a discussion. And number two in my uh, lingering questions, can you imagine if someone had dropped a cooler on the way out like Dr. Butterfingers? In fact, do you remember that scene from One Tree Hill, which is the greatest teenage slash young adult drama ever to be filmed about two half brothers who find common ground over a basketball court? In that show, one of the characters needed a new heart and it was Dan, Dan Scott. Oh, Danny boy. And if you know what I'm talking about, you know how hilarious 
unintentionally, maybe it was intentionally hilarious, that scene was when he was at the hospital and he was waiting for the organ recovery team to come back in order to start his transplant procedure, he was going to get a heart transplant. And so this medic comes like running in with a cooler and he trips and a therapy dog in the hospital that Dan had just been petting runs over and eats the donor heart right in front of Dan. It was the greatest scene of my life. It still obviously makes me laugh and giggle a little bit to this day. So in this case, in this real world experience that I had, that didn't happen with the transplant team. But oh my God, what if it did? What do you do? What do you do? Do you just like dust the heart off? Do you like blow on it like it's a cartridge from the 90s and just like just shake the dust off? Probably not. Okay, never mind. Back on topic. Jasmine's case is indeed based on true events that have happened to me. And to this day, in my little memory box that I keep, I still have the letters from the Donate Life and the organ donation people that were given to me, that were addressed actually specifically to me about the patients that ended up with transplants from the organ donor that ultimately changed those people's lives. Now, I don't lay any claim that I helped with it. I'm just doing my job according to hospital procedures and policies, and I am honored, I guess, to have a small, small, small role in what happened. But ultimately, it is a decision either made by the individual in advance, as in the case of a registered organ donor, or by their family and next of kin. And it is a heroic decision. It can be an incredible gift to so many other people, and it has this power to change a life and to save a life through transplant. But it is, again, a personal choice, and in some cases, it's a gut-wrenching choice to make on behalf of a loved one at the end of their life. Now, I could do a whole episode about organ and tissue donation, and I think I should in the future, but real quick... In the spirit of breaking myths with knowledge, let's talk a little bit about some organ and tissue donation myths and just kind of dispel them right now. Organ and tissue donation does not disfigure the body. They will put prosthetics in there for a lot of the tissue donations and they will still be very respectful of preparing the body especially because you can still have funeral viewing that is possible still after donation. Also, donor families are not charged for donation. There are no age limits to organ donation. It is against the law to sell organs and or tissues. And finally, doctors will not let you die to get organs and or tissues. I'm going to repeat that. Doctors will not let you die to get organs and or tissues. ER doctors, critical care doctors, intensivists, and organ recovery and transplant doctors are not in cahoots with each other. In fact, if you find out that there are doctors who are in cahoots with each other, report them, please, because an ER doc is not going to let you die. Intensivists will not let you die. They do what's best for the patient, and I can assure you, they don't like to lose. But here's an interesting tidbit that will again link us back into Heart Health Month. In the world of patients who need heart transplants, there are patients who worry about who their donors are. Now, real patients have reported that they were worried 
that their personalities would change after a heart transplant, going so far as to being hesitant about the gender of their donor because if it was of the opposite sex, they were afraid something would happen to their personality. Now, some patients have reported that they became anxious about losing their sense of self post-transplant. Now, this brings up a whole different sort of topic. And if you've read articles about transplant patients, sometimes they'll report that post-transplant, they crave foods that they never did before, or seemingly a stranger becomes somewhat familiar in a way that they don't understand. And then they'll come to find out that the donor loved eating that specific food. Like all of a sudden they loved fried pickles and ranch and they never ate it before pre-transplant, but post-transplant they crave it. Or they'll figure out that that donor knew this stranger to them, but now it's sort of that familiar feeling. And that's a whole topic in and of itself that I personally find fascinating regarding cellular memory and a little bit of this like memories that you can get from people's organs. And I get excited talking about it because it reminds me so much of science fiction, but also it might be a little bit of science fact. So basically in order to do that topic justice, I can't talk about it just yet. Not right now, Kim. Not right now. Just wait. Be cool. Be cool. But definitely down the line, it's got to be something that I'm going to talk about. Hold me to it, you guys. Just hold me to it. Going back to heart transplant patients, their concern lies with the heart being seen as a source of love and emotions and focus of personality traits. So it comes down to this. Can a transplanted heart change a person's personality? Some studies will say, hell no. And some studies give a shrug of the shoulders and say, yeah, sure, maybe, I don't know. But I want to mention this before moving on. One heart transplant patient did report, quote, I love to put on earphones and play loud music. It's something I never did before. A different car, a good stereo, those are my dreams now. And I have thoughts now that I never have before, end quote. Now that patient is a 45-year-old man. And the donor heart he got was from a 17-year-old boy. And so to that I say, help me out, Bill Nye the Science Guy. Help me out. Let's just say you're in advanced heart failure and you're waiting for a transplant. So what is the Tin Man to do? Meds do help to a certain extent, but for some patients, a left ventricular assist device, aka an LVAD, L-V-A-D, is needed. Now, if you remember from the previous episode about Takasubo cardiomyopathy, in that condition, the left ventricle is also a problem child. So why does the left ventricle cause so much trouble? Your heart is comprised of four chambers, and the upper chambers are called the atria, and the lower chambers are called the ventricles. The left ventricle is the heart's main pumping chamber, and is responsible for pumping blood to your body. For some people with heart failure, the left ventricle weakens to the point that it can no longer pump enough blood on its own. Yes, it gets weak, as I do if I were to ever meet Idris Elba in real life, who apparently is now engaged. I am still dealing with that revelation. Thank you for your understanding at this time of my great emotional distress. Now back to LVADs. 
An LVAD, the left ventricular assist device, is a surgically implanted battery or electrical powered pump that helps a failing heart's left ventricle pump adequate amounts of blood to the body. Now, why would you need it? And how do you figure out if you need it? Heart failure, which is when the heart is not strong enough to pump blood for your body's needs, when that occurs, it can be, much like the X-Files or Whitewater Rapids, classified from a class one, which is a mild, to a class four, severe case of heart failure. Now, heart transplantation is the gold standard treatment for class four heart failure. If you are waiting for a heart transplant, preferably one that won't change your personality, or if you are ineligible for a transplant and are doing poorly with maximal medical therapy and medicine interventions, an LVAD can be a life-saving device and improve your quality of life. Now, for some people, after the LVAD surgery, their heart might as well be a Chip and Joanna Gaines project as it is now a fixer-upper. The LVAD helps out the left side of your heart, and medications are needed to help optimize function on the right side of the heart and to help with remodeling the heart. So for some people, after the LVAD surgery, they actually experience recovery of heart function. But let's say that that just doesn't work. If you are evaluated and deemed appropriate for a heart transplant, then you may receive an LVAD as a, quote, bridge to transplant. Once a heart is available, which actually may take as long as one to two years. How crazy is that? You may then receive your transplant once the heart's available. Now, some patients are initially deemed ineligible for a transplant and receive an LVAD as an alternative for what is called, quote, destination therapy. Now, this LVAD may improve their overall condition, and then they can be reassessed and found out to be a suitable candidate for heart transplant at that time. The LVAD, again, is implanted in the patient's upper abdomen. This is a surgical procedure, so again, it's implanted in the abdomen. And the battery that holds it is worn around the waist, or if it's like an external sort of situation, the battery actually resides and is placed in these external holsters on either side of a person. So let me just explain that a bit better because I don't know if I even followed what I just said. The LVAD has both internal and external components, and the actual pump sits on or next to the heart's left ventricle with a tube attached that routes the blood to your aorta, and that that aorta is, is pretty much your main freeway for all your blood to go to the rest of your body. Now, a cable called a driveline extends from the pump out through the skin and connects the pump to a controller and power sources, which are then worn outside the body. Now, the driveline must be connected to the controller, and the controller must be connected to power at all times to keep the pump working properly. Again, the pump is powered by batteries or sometimes electricity. And this was actually interesting. Some LVADs out there, some of the manufacturers have gotten a little bit fancy, and they have an adapter that also allows the LVAD to run off of a car battery. So... Just imagine you're picking up a friend and they're like, oh, shoot, hang on. I need to plug in my heart real quick. And I guess if you have a newer vehicle, that'd be fine because you just have like two outlets there by by the front console. Like I'll charge my phone. You charge your heart. ET phone home. Heart lights. We're all good, Elliot. So 
how do you actually wear an LVAD? Because if it has these external components and it's kind of going to your heart, don't you want to make sure that you have something secure sort of wearing there? And the best way I could describe it is um, you know how some old guys like Dr. Now from the best show ever, My 600 Pound Life, he loves wearing suspenders basically all the time even under his scrubs, I've observed. But that's basically what it's like to live with an LVAD. You're constantly wearing suspenders, and these suspenders just so happen to be housing these holsters that attach to the battery pack to keep your heart beating and keep yourself alive. No biggie, no smalls. Basically, you are like a detective back in the day. You got these two holsters. You look like you mean business. Maybe you have a firearm on one side and your battery pack on the other. I just wouldn't want to get those confused given whatever emergency is going on. You just like dislodge something. No, I don't think that's possible, but maybe it is. I don't know. If you have an LVAD, definitely talk to me. I'm very interested in seeing all about that world. Now, people with an LVAD can do many things normally, but they do have to be wary of some situations. Swimming, well, swimming, their cardiologists will probably pull their best Simon Cowell because that's a no from them. Physical activity involving heavy contact that might cause bruising around the device is inadvisable, so maybe planning that CrossFit or Olympic powerlifting career post-LVAD surgery might need a little bit of modification and adaptation. Patients with LVADs can travel by land, sea, air, train, possibly teleportation, How rad would that be? But either way, they have to take into account that wherever they're going, the route and destination needs to include and take into account areas near them that will have an LVAD program in case of an emergency. Now, speaking of emergencies with an LVAD patient, it gets a little bit tricky. Now, sometimes equipment can malfunction and alarms go off, and so patients will need to be seen in the ER to address that. When that happens, we actually have procedures in place to contact LVAD coordinators and doctors in order to take care of these patients. But say that it's a code and that an LVAD patient is coming into the ER with a full-on cardiac arrest. Blood pressures are a little bit hard to finagle and it gets a little complicated because most of the time you need to use a manual cuff because they won't necessarily read off of an automatic one. But the biggest thing that kind of creates this hang up in the ER, especially with cardiac arrest, is chest compressions. Now some LVAD manufacturers currently do not recommend chest compressions for fear of dislodging the device. But get ready for a truth bomb, chest compressions have been done on LVAD patients and they have recovered patients without dislodging the device. So the jury is still a bit out regarding chest compressions across the board for LVAD patients, as it varies from person to person and situation to situation. But you can defibrillate an LVAD patient, and you can essentially carry on CPR while the LVAD team is on their way to provide further help and management of that patient. So, That's a bit of a brief-ish overview of the realm of organ donation and heart transplantation and LVADs. I just kind of wrapped it all into one. So I like wrapping things. Let's wrap this up with your favorite game, You Got What Stuck Where. 
Now what I do is I give you four clues. You tweet to me at People Are Wild with your guess, and the most correct guess wins some sweet stickers and possibly some bragging rights. So let's do this. Clue number one, this happened to a teenager in China. Clue number two, it happened while he was, surprise, surprise, intoxicated. Clue number three, I, you know, clue number three kind of throws me for a loop, and I'm sure you're going to get this. So whoever just gets this in, gets the guess right first, you get the stickers. But clue number three, I have a hard time believing, but whatever. Uh, while being examined, the teenager turned over in the bed and inadvertently changed channel on the television, which leads into clue number four. The foreign object in question was stuck up this teenager's rear end. So there you have it. Tweet to me at People Are Wild. Like I said, just be the first one to to do the guess and I'll send you stickers. I still don't, I don't know if clue three even really happened. I'm, I'm hard pressed to kind of believe that, but yeah, maybe, maybe it did. So you can also just tweet to me in general at People Are Wild. I enjoy interacting with the whole lot of you. Just don't slide into my DMs with photos you wouldn't want your grandma to see, much less an ER nurse you barely know. So thank you again for listening for yet another week. Thank you again for your support. Next week will be the last week for Heart Health Month and All Matters of the Heart. I might just play Hearts Alone on repeat for the whole show. That's just what I'm feeling right now. Guess you'll have to come back next week to find out if I follow through. But real quick, I just want to give a shout out to my dad. He listens to this every week and gives me some of the best, most hilarious feedback. You're the best. You are an amazing support. You know why I'm dedicating this to you this week. I love you and I will talk to you soon. Big ups also to everybody and everyone out there who's downloaded the Pulse Point app. That's so awesome. I'm glad people are doing that. We need to increase a lot of our CPR saves live mentality. So that is just one step towards that. So I want to wish you all a great week ahead. Believe in the good. It is out there. And once again, consider taking a CPR class. Hi, I'm Stefan Ato host of Talking With Dinosaurs, the world's number one rated comedy dinosaur trivia podcast hosted by a New Zealander and winner of the 2017 inaugural Talking With Dinosaurs podcast awards, as voted on by me in a totally not suspicious way. Tune in every second Tuesday to hear me talk about dinosaurs. Go on, you love dinosaurs. You know you want to.